Disney stuff is just ridiculous. It's business astrology. You, know, <laughs> you, you're, you're, you may as well just be targeting Gemini's. You might Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the Rockstar CMO Epping Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Truscott. I'm no rock star, but on this week's podcast, I chat with the true rock stars, my fabulous guests and chums that I've met on my journey from techie to CMO to share their marketing street knowledge. Come say hello. We are Rockstar CMO on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'll include links to me, my guests, and all the things we talk about in the show notes on rockstarcmo.com. And we are proud members of the Marketing Podcast Network. It's Saturday, the 29th of April. I hope you've had a great week. You are well and staying as sane as you feel you need to be. This week in the marketing studio, Jeff Clark and I discuss personalization in B2B. I'm delighted to go backstage with author and speaker David Allison and chat about his value graphics work. And I wind down the week with Robert Rose and the Rockstar CMO Virtual Bar. But first, we need to pay the bar tab. I'll be back in a moment. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. On to our first segment, the Marketing Studio with Jeff Clark, our weekly dose of marketing street knowledge from our resident Rockstar CMO, strategy advisor, and former Forrester Research Director. Welcome <laughs> to the Rockstar Studio. Thank you very much. The Rockstar CMO Studio. Rockstar CMO Studio. Yeah. yeah. I read the sign on the way in. It says, <laughs> right. it says, it says in big neon lights, it says Rockstar the CMO studio, studio with Jeff Clark. That's right. Men's room down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, mate? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you, mate. It's absolutely, uh, if I can use the uh, English technical term for the weather, it's in down with rain. <laughs> <laughs> How's Massachusetts? Well, we had uh, we had uh, two inches of that stuff on uh, a couple of days ago. So we're wow. where everything is like green, like, uh, you know, like, uh, Ireland, yeah. like Ireland, except with sunshine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a nice that's the nice thing about this time of year. Everything's lush at the moment yes. when I look outside. Yes. But it, it hasn't started brown yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. So that's uh, that's great. That's the first agenda item off, off the table. We've, we've got the uh, weather sorted out. Um, where this week, as I understand it, and I understand it because we do preparation, so it's not like <laughs> I'm making this up, but you've been reading an article by one of your old chums over at Forrester, Jessie Johnson, who's a principal analyst. I don't know Jessie, I don't think. Um, and she wrote a piece, Let's Chat About B2B Personalization. And that is the topic for today, B2B personalization. Um, and uh, it's one of our favorites, I think, isn't it? We like to talk about B2B for, for sure. 
So B two B. So uh, let's chat about B two B personalization. What say you, Jeff? Well, let's 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 have a chat about it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, we it, do what we're told, right? Yeah, that's somebody right. From, that's right. Somebody well, from Forrester says do something, we do it. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's it's really when I worked there. That's was my expectation of my, my clients. But um, I mean, I, I you know thought it was an interesting topic because you know we've both been involved with uh, mm. personalization project, you know, trying to conduct mm. it ourselves mm. at companies we've worked at. And, um, you know, I remember back at, at uh, you know, aforementioned or company that will go nameless uh, that doesn't actually, the name doesn't exist anymore, but where we work uh, <laughs> and we were using our own products to demonstrate uh, personalization or at mm. least attempt to. And, uh, at least my experience was that you know doing targeting on our on our website uh, was pretty easy. You know, people self select mm-hmm. interests, and so then you can mm-hmm. you know you can track yeah. and and serve up new stuff. Uh, but the next step, you know, was complicated, and you know, mm-hmm. part of it was you know lack of direction in terms of what we're trying to accomplish with the clients. Yeah. Part of it was lack of data to actually be able to understand <laughs> the client. You know, when you're engaged with them, how to how to actually yeah. serve them up. And, um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's just, it's a really, it's a complicated topic and it's, you know, it's Mm. important to kind of take it kind of step by step. And, and Jesse had this quote, which I thought was really, um, appropriate, you know, meaningful, the quote is meaningful, personalized interactions demonstrate a commitment to be responsive, relevant, and respective, respectful. And aligned mm-hmm. around a common goal of helping your buyers and your customers make better decisions. And I thought, my gosh, that's what we talk about yeah. all the time on this yeah. podcast. And yeah. and um, of course, she was referring mostly to primarily the online engagement, but I think the approach mm-hmm. applies across mm-hmm. all types of engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, what she does is is really ask questions that we as the marketers should be thinking about. Right. As we go down the road to personalization. Yes. I, I, um, yeah, I, I, the thing is, is I think I've been talking about this topic for like 20 odd years since I, I was so. a vignette yeah. back in the day, well, right? So well, since uh, we how, could do mail merge on email. <laughs> yeah. How on earth, <laughs> how on earth are we going to fit this into 20 minutes? I'm not sure, but I thought that, and I did, yeah, I wasn't sure what you were going to say about the former vendor that we both used to work for, um, and where, why we can't say their name, but I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to go with you on that. But I think one of the challenges we actually had technically is we were, we were at a vendor where, you have to drink your own champagne, right? Oh, <laughs> so yes. You're yes. trying to get something done and you've got, and you're not, um, most software vendors are not the right profile of their customers, uh, uh, but they still have to use those tools, right? So you're using absolutely. this big, hefty enterprise tool and you're trying to get something agile done, like a little bit of personalization, <laughs> and it costs you thousands. And, and the champagne might not have been ready to uncork either. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go well, there. <laughs> well, it's like uh, it's like giving kids. Uh, it's like you know. It's like giving kids a light lemonade, the top shelf um, champagne stuff. Right? They don't need it. <laughs> it's just you know, it's like it might be champagne, but hey, we, we're not champagne people. Anyway, yeah, that's that's that would take us into a whole another rabbit hole of vendors having to use their own software. <laughs> Um, so yes, as you said in the article, Jesse asked five questions to inspire your approach to personalization. And my role here, as um, as it's my show, and you're the one with the brains, is <laughs> I'm going to ask the questions. So first question, Jeff: How will personalization deliver value to your customer? Um, so <laughs> you know, this is um, 
you know, we often uh, talk about this on the show is, and, and yeah. this is the, the quote, you know, back from Jesse, you know, addresses this as you're trying to help customers solve their business problems. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're addressing a need. So everything about the content you're serving, the context, the, you know, understanding how the customer tries to get information. So, yeah. you know, what are the delivery mechanisms that you're going to get to them? You know, it's got to uh, it's got to be addressing the questions they have and help kind of go down a logical path of, OK, if, if now I learn this, now I'm going to have other questions. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you got to fit your story about what you do, how you solve their business problems, your brand, how your brand is is means you're the best people to be talking to about this yeah. this this particular issue. Um, it, it all has to be, this is the delivering the value to the customer. Uh, and, um, and the more you can tailor it to your mm-hmm. audience, obviously the better. And whether you're yeah. just, you know, doing some rather simple targeting as we kind of referenced before, or you're trying to get really specific as they go down answering those questions, that's the challenge. Now, when, and my thought on this, um, particularly when it comes to the, comes to content is um is that uh sometimes we talk about personalization as it's this machine that has to be this um white glove service of making sure that the audience is expresses their interest or we or imply their interest and we serve them the right content but sometimes it's just having that content right so i think that first steps that you you said there about um understanding their needs i mean that to me is a fundament that many organizations even haven't got to yet let alone do that white glove service right yep absolutely yeah yeah yeah. so really the the answer to the question how will personalization deliver value to your customer is just delivering useful content yeah and and as much as uh you know people particularly online will do their own path to research and information then you're your personalization techniques should all yeah. be about uh, getting them to that content, mm-hmm. however, whatever the right approach is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I and I, I, I completely agree with that because I think it is when people are absolutely interested in buying your product, they, they will do the research and they will find the content. Okay. So we don't hide it, but I don't know. Yep. You know, it seems to me there is a certain amount of self-selection that will happen on this. Anyway, so number two, uh, we've only got to number two. Sorry about that. That's my fault. Um, <laughs> at what point in a buying journey is personalization appropriate? It's um, so. This is a great question because mm-hmm. this is where uh, personalization is uh, personalized. Not to get, not to try to like, <laughs> you know, mount one personalization on top of another. But uh-huh. you know, it's just that. That every situation, you know, the situation like that's, you know, you're at your company or when we were back at our old company or you know, whatever, it it's like you have to think about, you know, your customers, what's going to be meaningful and relevant for them. Uh, mm-hmm. What do they know already? Where are they in a process? What role do they play in decision making? You may have multiple people coming in from uh, from one organization. Some of them may be involved in the same, you know buying process some might be in something else so this is where your journey mapping exercises come in uh and and not as not as if the the fact you can actually totally orchestrate what they're going to do but you want to be able to understand what information you know back uh, we were talking about in the last question that people 
tend to navigate their own way into doing their research. So you got to kind of understand what is the logical flow of information that your customer is going to want so that you can, you can um, serve that up and understand what are the, the best mechanisms for actually delivering that content to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the answer to the question there, at what point in a buying journey is personalization appropriate is um, the, the point you just made is we need to have that buyer's journey mapped. We need to understand their needs along the journey, but that, to to me, that sounds like um, you have to have a level of personalization, at least from a content creation perspective, happening Correct. throughout the journey, right? Right. Because um, if you're answering a logical set of questions, you know what what are some of yeah. the first things that that a prospect is going to be thinking about? Yeah. What what's kind of next? Then then that enables you to serve things in a way that is right. supporting their orchestrated journey, and yeah. and and some of it. You know, because like there's content you're going to put up on the website. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if if you if you um, try to get personal too early, somebody yeah. might think that's a little creepy. Uh, obviously, if you're a customer, you know, and you maybe you're now you're part of a gated community for customers. OK, mm-hmm. there you're the, the expectation is that that you will be providing mm-hmm. a personalized personalized interactions. And so doing the journey mapping to find out kind of where and from point A to point B it makes sense is absolutely essential. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. I'm, I'm kind of having a bit of a, a strange thought about this whole personalization thing here is what is it that Jesse's suggesting are we doing with our personalization? From my point of view so far is, uh, particularly as we've discussed, the amount of time people are going to spend looking for content and doing their own research is like, I think it's primarily just about creating a good content foundation at this point, isn't it? So. And I think I've said that a couple of times. So, okay. So that, so that, for, so the third question, how will the tactic and content be personalized? I think this probably gets to the bit that I was this just actually, wondering. This gets to what you were just talking yeah. about, because the content yeah, yeah. is the first thing you need to consider. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then you need to think about, well, to determine how they, uh, you know, if, if we go and we've done our, our needs analysis and we've understand how people consume information, what are the formats, what are the delivery mechanisms now? Now we can start to determine what, you know, which of those mechanisms actually requires a personalized touch. And it doesn't always mean that you have to know exactly who the contact is, you know, from, uh, mm. you know, it's like you don't necessarily know this is John Doe from, you know, from yeah, ABC yeah. Corporation yeah. because. You can you you can pull information from all the interactions, understand interests, content preference, yeah. journey. Those are things you can start to infer from that information. And now, you know, what are we delivering to them? Is it a specific offer? Is it an invitation mm-hmm. to talk to someone to get a demo? Is it a invitation to an event? They're coming in from France. We're holding an event in Paris. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to pop something up that says, uh, you know, look, here's a Here's an event you may be interested in. And those are the sort of things mm. that people would find totally appropriate mm. to to be receiving. Yeah, yeah. Until, um, until I, I don't know. I don't know why I've turned into cynic on this, but um, it's like well, the skeptic because it's like when you travel and you go to the regular website you always use. I mean, British Airways is perhaps one of the worst examples for me. And I'm in Spain and it decides all of a sudden that I'm Spanish. It's yes. Like, 
Um, uh, yes, I am in Spain, but that don't assume <laughs> for a moment that this same machine that you've just flown from one place to another. I had, suddenly a, com- I had a computer Spanish. that every time I went into the location service, the computer thought I was from Amsterdam. And I was like, OK, I know <laughs> I spent a lot of time there, but I am not from Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we need to be. And I think that's an important point. I don't know whether Jesse addressed that in this article and, and in, in the questions we're going to ask, but. To me, I think that quite often you can do more harm than good with personalization, especially if we assume that if we provide the content in an easily findable fashion, people will self-select. Making assumptions is when people discover that you're per- is when people get offended by personalization, isn't it? It's when yes. they don't like it. Yeah. It's yeah. when it's exposed. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I yeah. think this is where data and the accuracy uh you know, which starts to get into the next one. I mean, this is where it is yeah. oh, so yes. important Sorry, to understand <laughs> to understand what, what, what our assumptions Let we me can ask the make. Next que- Let me ask the next question then, Jeff, so just to keep us on track. <laughs> what are the rules for delivery? <laughs> yes, the rules for delivery. So, you know, you want to build uh, knowledge of individual pre- interaction preferences for an individual so you can start to adapt you know, and provide the triggers to mm. suit the needs of the person who is who is doing the research. And so this does yeah. require a unification of data across platforms. Obviously, when you're kind of mm-hmm. talking about those early stages, you know, this might all be within your uh, your content management system and and it's supporting supporting tools. But then, you know, as you look at data from your offline engagement, from your CRM systems, Etc. Then you know. Then you can start to suss out. You know who's a prospect versus a customer. You know where are they? Now we can get more detailed about where they are mm-hmm. in a buying journey. Maybe they've because they've selected certain things that they've requested. Now we can be more yeah. confident about their current interests. Yeah. Uh, and then the important thing is: Are these people related to others in the organization who are on a parallel journey, looking for yeah, some yeah. of the same solution? Yeah. Yeah, no, I love all this. And I also uh, the um uh because I think it's a much nicer experience for the visitor, right? Because you're using um implied data based on behavior and also with any luck, you're not asking them to fill in a fucking form or yeah. download something because they recognize that you've arrived, right? Which which is the thing that annoys me the most. Is yeah. You want three assets off of one website and in the same session fill in, fill in the form three fucking times. Yeah. But, we, but if we get um, you to that event in Paris, you've filled out the yeah. form. <laughs> now yeah. we know who you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I also think one of the nice things about this, where you're talking about the rules for delivery, it's probably one of those situations where if it's done really nicely, you don't actually notice. And I think that is the absolute um, high bar for personalization. If you don't notice it's happening, then it's great. Yeah, I think so anyway. So uh, so that, that's, that, those are the four questions. What's the fifth? How, oh, sorry, oh, I'm asking you. I'm the one asking yeah. the questions. Hang on. How do we know? <laughs> how, we, how do we know that we're doing it right? I mean, God, it's like Jesse knows our five effing things. I mean, isn't it always Jesse. we're at the end? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So how do we know that we're doing it right, yeah. Jeff? Well, I think there's the there's the short term measures that, mm-hmm. you know, anyone involved in digital marketing, you know, knows, you know, are we mm-hmm. are we are we looking for activity? Are we looking for the behavior characteristics? Are we getting conversions on assets that they're downloading things, viewing things, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And those are good um, because those can there's where you can see that the the content and delivery mechanisms are successful themselves. 
Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think you want to be, uh, you know, looking at how are we how are we progressing over the long term? Are we able to build profiles of individuals? Are we able to unify individuals into buying groups or organizations? Mm-hmm. You know, are we able to increase engagement from certain audiences? I mean, one of the companies I worked for, we were totally focused on uh, on building engagement from the organizational level and then the individual level. So we're looking at the number of active people, uh, you know, that were, we were in conversation with both on and offline. And so those are the things where you can, and you can, you can start to look at those types of metrics and see how those correlate to, to revenue. Cause the, the more you can tie the success of your personalization approach to revenue, and it's not going to be a, a direct, uh, relationship. It's going to be more of a correlation. Um, but you can see, you know, what content are driving journeys forward, what tactics are driving journeys forward, what, what's the yeah. amount of engagement that drives journeys forward. Uh, and can we relate them at all to in an aggregate form to opportunities or closed business? Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's, uh, so the, really that's kind of like attribution and contribution, right? Is yep. it, but, but we're, and I, I'm not really sure about this because it just seems to me like, this would just be measuring the success of your campaigns. I'm not sure about measuring the value of personalization specifically within a campaign. I mean, I don't, if that is that what Jesse is that what the article is referring? I think to? the thing is that if you're if you are um, you know since you're uh, one of the things we actually should have been mentioning at the at the front is that a lot of this is is through experimentation, and so yeah. if you can look at a campaign or uh, components of a campaign that are offering personalization, more personalized interaction, you can see how they do vis-a-vis other, uh, other tactics you're using. Um, or again, you can just see, you can just say if we're, if we're increasing the amount of our, our ability to personalize our interaction with, with prospects and customers, do we see that as improving our marketing mm. statistics overall? Mm. Yeah, I I just think it's part of the big mix, right? It's just that a, yep. a, a, a good personalized campaign should perform better than what you were doing before. It's just that sort of agile, inter- iteratively improving your campaigns and making them sharper, more targeted and more personalized, right? So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Making that attribution specifically to personalization is interesting. All right, so those were our five questions, and I and I'll I guess I should encourage the listeners to go compare your answers or our answers with what Jessie came up with in her article. And her article was called "Is on the Forrester blog," and it's called "Let's Chat About B two B Personalization" by Jessie Johnson, the principal analyst. And then if I get to our third agenda item, having done that one, um. What song are we going for this week, Jeff? We're going for a song from the Arctic Monkeys, mm-hmm. um, which <laughs> is a great name because I think with climate change, there'll be <laughs> monkeys in the Arctic before we know it. Yeah. Uh, and it's called Brick by Brick from 2011. And I liked it because it says, I want to build you up brick by brick. I want to reconstruct brick by brick. Yeah. And I just, thinking back to my my own experience of this <laughs> is that it's like, it's, you know, it's like you you take steps, it works. Yes. You take another step, it works. Yes. You take another step. So you're kind of building it brick by brick. 
Yeah, no, I love it. And um, I thought, and also as a content person, it absolutely, uh, that is what you're building brick by brick. Uh, and also, Absolutely. and also, Jeff, uh, because um, I didn't let you play this last week, so uh... <laughs> that's right. I, I was like, we got to use this, <laughs> so we're gonna. So it's next week. <laughs> so we're gonna play out with brick by brick by the Arctic Monkeys in twenty eleven. And uh, despite my cheekiness, will I be welcome in the studio next week? Yes, as long as you're not so skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just like I man. thought you were, you you were addressing the right question. So this poses <laughs> questions. You pose questions. Yes, this is this is. A... I think it's a. I think it's a topic we should cover a bit more. And I think each of these different questions that that Jesse raises could probably use a bit more conversation, right? And yes, absolutely. And also, as is often the case, somebody has taken a specific lens, which actually opens up a broader. You know, this is just good good marketing rather than it's about personalization or whatever the topic yeah. to show is. All right, mate. Well, I'll um, I'll see you next week in the studio then. Sounds good. Cheers, buddy. Hey Jeff, and that was Brick by Brick by the Arctic Monkeys from 2011. Please let us know what you think. Maybe suggest a topic that I can ask Jeff about. You know, we get all this forester grade advice for free. Right, time to go backstage with my guest. David Allison is a human values expert, global researcher and best-selling author. As the founder of the Value Graphics Project, the first global inventory of core human values, he has made values into a measurable business metric, a new kind of insight that helps organisations succeed in today's values economy. David is focused on changing the way we understand ourselves, the people around us and those we hope to engage with our work. He speaks internationally and helps big brands connect with people by honouring their values. Inc. Magazine named his last book one of the 10 best leadership books of the year and he has recently published his new book, The Death of Demographics, Value Graphic Marketing for a Values Driven World. As you'll hear, I've followed David for years. Delighted to have him on the show. I really hope he enjoys conversation. Welcome, David, to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me over. Nice place you have here. <laughs> it's <an> absolute <laughs> delight. It's absolute delight. And as we were chatting um, beforehand, um, I've um, I've followed you for a while. I, I wrote a blog post about some of your work. I think it was back in 2019. You were kind enough to to like it, I think, and then we connected on LinkedIn. So finally, get you on the show is is excellent. And no, also, I'm... I have to thank um, uh, Kate. Uh, uh, Katie Bradley Chernis, who's who's a big friend of the show, who actually pushed us finally to make this happen. So I think, yeah, Kate's amazing. Yeah, Kate, anybody Kate, listening, I'm already plugging she, she, her company's lately.ai. Go check it yeah, out. I won't yeah. say anymore, but go do it. You'll thank me later. Yeah, she's been on the show before. Did I say Katie or did I say Kate? I should say Kate. Anyway, um, <laughs> for, for, so for people that don't have that history with you, um, I've be, I've read that you've been called a value activist and you call yourself a human values expert. And I know you from your value graphics work. I was inspired by your first book, as I was saying. And um, But for listeners that aren't familiar with your work, tell us a bit about yourself. 
Yeah. So I'm, uh, my name is David and, mm -hmm. uh, I live in Vancouver, Canada and, uh, which is the most beautiful city on earth. And <laughs> I have a marketing background, had my own marketing firm for a very long time. And like everybody else in marketing, we always start every project by trying to sit down and understand who's the target audience. Mm -hmm. And the tools we have to do that are demographics. Mm -hmm. So we take a look at age, income, gender, marital status, number of kids, all those kinds of things and all everything else, which kind of falls into a category of psychographics, all the other stuff we know. Yeah. Uh, and there's fundamental flaws with both of them when it comes to understanding the people we're trying to influence. Mm -hmm. Demographics are a great way of putting a fence around a group of people, but they don't tell you who they are. They only tell you what they are. You know, women aren't all the same as each other. Millennials are not all the same as either, despite what millennial experts want you to believe. Yeah. Uh, demographic cohorts, in fact, only resemble each other 10% of the time, according to our global database of close to a million surveys. Mm -hmm. So it's a great way to fence people off, but it's a really terrible way to understand who they are and how you can influence them. So psychographics, they're better. Uh, they're a record of everything that people have felt and their emotions and preferences and likes and their, you know, mm -hmm. click studies and geotargeting and all everything else, all that other data we've been collecting like crazy people for the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the problem with all of that is it comes from exactly the same place, which is the past mm -hmm. because we wrote it down and we know it. So it's already happened. You can see patterns in the noise and those can be very useful, but we're all trying to drive this car forward into the future and get people to do something tomorrow. So navigating the car by looking in the rearview mirror doesn't seem like the safest bet to me. Yeah. So value graphics are the third way that we now mm -hmm. have to look at people and value graphics add to the mix. Values are about how people decide to do the things they're going to do. What values are driving them? What's the GPS system for this target audience? So now you'd know with demographics what they are, you know, with psychographics, how they've behaved so far. And with mm -hmm. value graphics, you know what you need to say and do to get them to do something next. Mm -hmm. and, and that really, uh, that's what inspired me because um, the story I told in my blog post was I was at a conference and somebody was talking about millennials and they, they read out a list of the things that millennials do. And I thought, oh. I do that. You know, I don't want to talk to people on yeah. the phone. I want to use chat. I'm like um, tech savvy. And I thought, but you know, I'm not a millennial. So if you try to reach out to me in the way you think you need to for my demographic, you would miss me because I behave like a millennial. And I don't like, like a lot of sense. It's yeah. nonsense. All of that age-based stuff is just ridiculous. It's business yeah. astrology. You, know? <laughs> you, you're, you're, you may as well just be targeting Gemini's. You might, you might have a better <laughs> chance of saying, my, my audience is 74% Gemini and the remainder are Libra. Uh, probably give you a better uh, set of tools to go with. There is no such thing as generational cohort cohesion. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this briefly a moment ago, but you yeah, know we've done yeah. close to a million surveys now. And if we look at any demographic cohort uh, and say, how similar are they across the values that drive people to make decisions, which by the way, is a neurological fact. Right. You don't get to just say, well, I don't believe that values are like, no values are how your brain works. Mm -hmm. There's a piece inside your prefrontal cortex, the insula, and its only job is to determine what you're going to do next. And it only has one set of tools mm -hmm. and that's your value. So you don't get a choice. Everybody listening. I'm sorry. This is how your brain works. <laughs> So if you look at all those values around the world and say, how sim how many of those values are shared by people mm. in different generational cohorts, or in fact, any demographic cohort, the answer is on average 10.5%. 
So round off for the sake of conversation, 10%. What that means is this. If you try and target a group of millennials who earn $150,000 a year, who have a white collar job and are single, that's four different subsectors of subsegments of a demographic cohort piled on top of each other for a larger group of people who now still only resemble each other 10% of the time. And then we spend a million dollars talking to them (laughs) and you get a possible, the best possible thing you can hope for is a 10% return on that dollar, which is why we get all excited when we see a 3% return on a direct marketing piece. Like, (laughs) oh my God, 3%, (laughs) up the champagne. Pain corks. Uh, it's a 97% fail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. we're using the wrong way to target mm-hmm. people. Yeah. And the evidence keeps slapping us in the face. And instead of going, wow, that's terrible, we go, 3%'s amazing. Last time we only got 2.7. Yay, <laughs> us. Uh, it's we all got to give our heads a shake here. Yeah, and I when I, I like the way you're focusing there on the 97% because I'm always doing the same, and I always think that you're slightly annoying 97% of the people with your ads. Yeah. You know, so it's having a detrimental effect. And so that's that that's the work. So you've described this work as value graphics, right? So these are things that bind people together. And I think what's interesting there as well is if you do any personal development work, people always the, the a coach will always talk to you about what are your values to understand your motivation so as you say there's that's that's the that's an important part of our ourself isn't it is is our values yeah. You know, you can look at this from all the different fields of behavioral science, from psychology, sociology, psychiatry, neurology. I like to talk about the neurology piece because people seem to feel it's the most sciencey of the sciences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so there is a piece in your brain. And this is this is what you do as humans wake up every morning mm-hmm. and run around all day making a million little decisions. What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to wear today? Where am I going to go? Uh, how am I going to get to work? Which should I see this? Per- should I respond to that email? I shouldn't. Should I marry this person? Should I buy that car? <laughs> should I buy that house? Should I go on vacation? A million little decisions every yeah. day. And the way your brain does that is the insula, the aforementioned insula inside the aforementioned uh, prefrontal cortex uh, says, huh, all right, this is what we're trying to sort out. Let's see what's all the data I have to make a decision here. I've got sights and sounds and smells and memories and past experiences and how I feel today and all these other things. And it takes all of that stuff and it pushes it through a filtering mechanism called your values. So if something comes along that's going to be, let's say, let's say family is a really, really important value for you. It's one of the 56 values that drive everything that all humans do. If family is a really important value for you and something comes along that might be good for your family, your prefrontal cortex, your insula is going to go, go get that thing. And if you go get that thing, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to make you feel happy. Yeah. I'm going to take you, you're going to, you're going to be even just mildly pleased. Somehow I'm going to reward you by going to get that thing. And if something came along that was bad for family or even like just mildly annoying for family, your, your insula says, get away from that thing, get it off our radar. We don't even want to think about that anymore. And until you do, I'm going to incense you by making you feel stress and anxiety uh, yeah. and pressure. So get that <laughs> thing out of here. Uh, <laughs> And then that's how we live. This is mm-hmm. what we do from the moment we're conscious in the morning to the moment we fall asleep at night. It's all about chasing values alignment. Right. That's what human existence is. And so we've built this giant database 
that allows us to, for the first time in history, look at a group of people and say, these folks here who are going to, I don't know, buy this pair of reading glasses I'm holding up, even though this <laughs> audio only interview, uh, this, the, the people who are going to buy those reading glasses, what's dr- driving that decision? Mm-hmm. They all are on the value of ambition and social standing, let's say. So those are two of the values in the 56 values. So if we know our reading glass buyers are motivated entirely in their entire life around issues of ambition and social standing, then those better be freaking platinum reading glasses uh, (laughs) with lenses ground by NASA scientists. Mm -hmm. And they better cost $2,000 and come in a gold case that sits on the dashboard of my Rolls Royce. (laughs) That's what those folks are looking for or some semblance thereof. Yeah, and all of this, I'm interested because, um, like I said, I got inspired by your first book, which is I've got it in my hand for the people that can't watch on video. We are all the same age now, and this is Value Graphics, the end of demographic stereotypes. So this led to that work. What, what, was, what was the epiphany for you? How, how did you move from the dogma that we, we've all been following of demographics to then come up with this idea of Value Graphics? Well, I had my own marketing firm for the longest time, and Mm. we had a specialty area, which was very, very large scale, generally luxury uh, real estate developments. Mm -hmm. So guys building big towers and resort communities would come to us and say, help us figure out how to sell this stuff. And so we'd sit down, figure out a target audience description based on demographics and psychographics, because that's all we had. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go and spend a million bucks and we'd (laughs) sell out the, you know, the condo tower or the resort community. And the cool thing about that sector in the marketing world is you get to meet the people who responded in fairly short order. So you Mm. launch a campaign and within a year you sold the stuff out and now you're in a room with them having a shrimp on a stick and a glass of cheap Prosecco and going, (laughs) yay, we're sold out the building. Isn't this great? Lucky you, you all get to come and live here. And you look around the room and you go, who the heck are all these people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are not the people that I spent a million dollars talking to. Maybe 10% of them are, mm-hmm. but the rest of them are like, what are you? Thank you for coming. You made me look like a rock star as the marketing guy. But yeah. what the heck are you doing here? I didn't talk to you. I didn't put any ads in your channels. I didn't mm-hmm. create um, creative messaging with you in mind. None of that. And yet here you are. Mm-hmm. And so when we set out to solve that problem, that's what led us into behavioral science and looking at how people decide to be in that room or any other metaphorical room we talk about in the marketing mm-hmm. world. Yeah. And it turns out those people in that room actually were identical. Okay. They were all there because a set of values had been activated. We just didn't know we were doing it. All right. But it's the only way human brains know how to make a decision. So everyone in that room had a set of values that were similar and they all came because of their values. Now, I was looking at them and going, demographically, you people are all over the freaking map. This isn't supposed to have happened. And psychographically, you people are all over the map. This wasn't what was supposed to go down, but I'm glad it did. So we were accidentally being successful. (laughs) Yeah. And now that we see with a different set of lenses, we can go back and look at that room and go, oh, if we had just looked inside you, if we just looked into your hearts, we would have seen that you were all driven by the same things. And in fact, everyone in the room was, they were all twins. They were all, they were all as closely aligned to each other as you could imagine. So we just now have a data set and a methodology that allows us to take that accident out of the equation Mm -hmm. and to do it purposefully and say, 
let's understand why people will say yes before we start spending money so that Mm -hmm. we can just focus on the stuff that's going to move the needle and not waste our time talking about the stuff that's not going to make a difference. Yeah, Um, that's. I mean, that's pretty insightful. I mean, I think most of us would have looked at that room and gone, wait, yay us, and then moved on to the next thing and not sat there and thought, how did this happen? Be like, we don't care. It happened. Well, you know, we care. did it. We did it for yeah. ten years. Like, yeah. I don't know. On average, let's say ten times a year. So, a yeah. hundred times, I got slapped across the face yeah. with this observation, and eventually, you're just like, yeah, I got to pay attention to this because <laughs> there's. I mean, I guess if we were a general marketing firm and we'd worked in all kinds of different yeah. um, sectors and we were doing yeah. brand work and all these other things, but no, it was just always. Spend a million bucks, see what happens. Spend a million bucks, see what happens. Spend a million bucks, see what happens. And over and over and over. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but eventually you get slapped around enough to start to pay attention to what's happening. And um, so, um, so, so you came came back and you, and you wrote your book, and then I've I've read your book and stuff. And um, what now? A lot of our audience are B two B people, and you were talking about a sort of B two C kind of environment there that inspired you into this. Do you think this applies also to folks that are selling B2B as well or marketing B2B as well as B2B? 100%. You know, B2B is nothing more than, yeah, I I really don't like those, those like B2B and B2C. (laughs) This is is humans to humans, right? That's not my line. Somebody else uses that, but it's, you don't magically change into a different being just because you've crossed the threshold into your work life. Yeah. You don't suddenly, you know, throw your values out the window and grab a different set of values that you're going to use to make decisions when you're in the office. It's still you. It's still you sitting there making decisions and filtering your world based on the values that you picked up when you were a kid during your childhood development process. So they're locked and loaded for your life and you don't get to turn them on and off. You don't get different sets of values. You don't get to decide, well, I'm no longer this person anymore. I'm going to be Mm -hmm. something entirely different. So Yes, it works perfectly. We have, I'm trying to think of a great example. Uh, a keynote speech I gave a while ago was for a group of tech founders mm-hmm. and they wanted to understand how could they position their sales um, uh, methodology, their sales language, their sales pathing, all of their written materials to get more large scale enterprise B2B clients to say yes and buy their technology. Yeah. So we were able to go out and profile people who hold those positions in large organizations across the United States and come back and say, here's the values they have in common. And we know that this works because the people who are in those positions in those organizations who make tech purchase decisions in large scale mm-hmm. enterprises, they're there because like all of us, a series of values based decisions brought them to that job. Right. To that occupation. So you talk to a bunch of them, ask them a few questions, compare what they say to the value graphics database, the benchmark, and yeah. we can come back and go, you know what? The biggest thing in their life is personal growth. Right. They want to be a better version of themselves tomorrow than they are today. So you're going to try and sell them a B2B product. How is talking to you about your product going to make <laughs> them a better yeah. version of themselves? Does it make them less stressed? Is it going to uh, get the promotion that they're looking for? Mm-hmm. Don't talk to them about all these other things that you think are important. All they want to hear is this going to is that this is going to exactly. make them a better person. Exactly. Yeah. No, I love that. And I think that we've. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about needs now in B two B personas, which I think is a, a step forward for us anyway to think about and to think about the customer as the hero in their own story kind of thing. That's what this sounds like, isn't it? Is understanding oh, yeah. what does it mean for them what what you're saying and, and, and applying that to those values. Yeah. And you know, 
I can't, I can't stress this enough. It's so broad based. Yeah. Everything happening in the world always yeah. comes back to people. It's yeah. a group of people making decisions to do one thing or another. It's a customer deciding to do something. Yeah. Social change, politics, the future of marketing, the future of business, the future of work. All of these topics are about how do we get people to do a thing we want them to do? That's yeah. what it all boils down to. We're all just trying to get some people to do a thing. And people are all about their values. Yeah. All about their values, all of us. So if <laughs> you just understand values, you understand people. Mm-hmm. And if you understand people, you understand buying, you understand marketing, you understand selling, you understand politics, social change, back mm-hmm. to work, working from home, all everything. You'll understand everything. If you stop thinking about the world based on demographic stereotypes, yeah. men are like this, boomers like that. People who are <laughs> making $250,000 a year, they're all identical to each other and they believe this. Yeah. I mean, all, anytime anybody tries to tell you that a demographic cohort is a, likes something or it will respond to X versus what it's yeah. bullshit. It's absolute <laughs> yeah. bullshit. Yeah. So use demographics for what they're good for. Put a fence around a group of people and say, you know, go back to my example of reading glasses. Those are not selling to 17 year old girls. They're big, <laughs> wide reading glasses. They're for a man's big giant head like mine. Nobody can see me, but I got the head. Beside <laughs> me. Uh, and, and so these glasses have to be big. Uh, yeah. And they're for rich guys because they're worth 2000 bucks. That's all good, but that's not who they are. It's right. just what they are. So when you yeah. have a demographically described target audience of men who are 18 to 24, earn $50,000 a year in a white collar job and they're single, what you know about them mm-hmm. is that they're men, they're 18 to 24, they have a white collar job and they're single. That's it. Full stop. Yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And we pretending that we, well, what are those guys like? Uh, sports. Let's get, let's get a sports star to be our, and that's how you end up with like Michael Jordan being paid Mm. to shoot hoops for whatever, because they think, well, they're all going to like sports because they're all the same as each other. Yeah. They're not. And I've heard, I mean, I've heard you describe this as, I mean, you just need to look at your own friends to realize how, you know, different, you know, different we all are right in the same, exactly in the same demographic cohort. You're all different. I'd love to, and, and, and we've dived straight into the work, which is excellent. I wanted to learn a little bit more about you and I've just looked at the clock and thought no hope right so so but one of the things I really did want to touch on before I let you go is um I heard a quote from you on video on LinkedIn that and you said data is the love language of organizations which is brilliant and also when you're talking to the C-suite and we on this show talk a lot about how marketers should be talking to C-suite and their colleagues on the on the senior team and you said no one listens to poetry which I thought was also absolutely perfect I'm going to steal both of those if you give me permission (laughs) but and as marketers we're all addicted to data now you're saying that this value graphic stuff and I know I've made a big leap forward is actually is, de- is sound data that means we can bring our customers and our people into the boardroom. Have I understood that right? Yeah. So as quickly as I can, because I know we're at the end of our time together. <laughs> but here's here's how this goes. We've spent decades trying to erase humanness 
mm-hmm. from organizations because humanity, human behavior, human nature is risky. It's emotional. It's irrational. It's illogical. It makes no sense. And it can't fit on a nice little tidy spreadsheet mm-hmm. with all the other data that the C-suite likes to look at and say, here's how we're going to make a decision about this thing versus that thing. Mm-hmm. We all want to use data to make decisions because it saves our own butts. If something goes horribly wrong, it's not your fault. The data said you should do this. So we're addicted to data as a way to run organizations. So fine. If you accept that as a fact, that's cool. But right now at this moment in history, where more than ever with the advent of AI and all these new technologies that are coming at us, we need to bring our humanness. It's Mm. what we will win at. AI is going to be the best technology. We aren't going to compete with AI. We have to be the thing that AI can't be, which Mm. is the most amazing humans possible. We have to embrace that irrational, emotional, illogical human nature. That's a fact. We need to bring that into the decision-making process, into those C-suites. And so how are we going to do that? We have to speak the language of corporations, which is data. Mm -hmm. So now we have value graphics that takes values, turns it into data, so we can give values and our shared humanity a seat at the boardroom table right next to the CFO and the CMO and the CEO should be the chief values officer whose responsibility is to make sure that everything that happens inside that organization is aligned with humans. Yeah, no, I, I love that because that that's so much the sentiment right now, isn't it? That we need to be, have more empathy with our customers, with our audience, with our staff. And this brings that data together that we can now understand the values of our people, right? Whether those are our people, our people as in and our not, tribe. And not, yeah. and not just poetry, not just yeah. sitting around yeah, like, yeah. What, are, what are our values? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Collaboration's a nice one. We all like that word. Yeah. And we better say diversity or we're going to be canceled. So that's one. <laughs> Uh, and, and so that's what we do. We sit around and we pick words and then we put them up on the wall behind the receptionist and go, there's our values. Like it's nonsense. I call it six vice presidents in a box of donuts. That's how we figure out what our our values are. It's nonsensical. You've been in some of my meetings, mate. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so a couple of just two more things. One is I just want to quickly mention that you've published your new book, The Death yep. of Demographics. Uh, it, that's out, isn't it? That's that's yes. Uh, because the Death of out. Demographics is available on, on a at an Amazon, a local tiny little retailer <laughs> called Amazon uh, near you. I'm sorry, it's not in bookstores, but um, yeah. bookstores don't. Uh, nobody yet. So go tell your bookstore they need to stock it and then maybe we can take the money away from Amazon but yeah death of demographics it's on amazon.com dot uk dot all the other dots right. and then uh, I, I, and, want, I just want to slide in my last question because I know you're, you I just want to hear this from you right. so we right, have right, a regular right. feature the rockstar CMO swimming pool where we throw all the bullshit snake hole and overhyped trends that plague this industry we love what would you chuck in David what would I chuck in the swimming pool like yeah. a drunken rock star? Yep. Uh, I, 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 my last boss. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, 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 being serious, um, demographic stereotypes. Absolutely. Like, if we stop thinking that the right way to look at people mm-hmm. is based on whether they're black or white or young or old or rich or poor or gay or straight, then we can turn the volume down and find some unity in these issues that plague us like racism and sexism and ageism and homophobia. And these are all demographically driven issues that we're grappling with and not very much successfully, I might say. Wow. And, 
It's yeah. because we keep looking at people and going, oh, there's a group of people. Another group of people we need to understand, uh, are they male or female? Yeah. How old are they? Yeah. How much money do they make? Yeah. Uh, what color yeah. is their skin? Uh, and and we, so we're just reinforcing that that's the right way to look at each other. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. The right way to look at each other is to understand is what's in each other's hearts. Yeah. And if we could just do that, if we just change the way we look at people, mm we can change the world. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and that's the fascinating thing about your book, about the depth it, go, it goes to, right? It's not just some great stuff, some great stuff to use as a marketer, but it's great stuff for the world, I think. So fascinating stuff. And I would encourage the listeners to go and do the research because I have not been able to do it justice in like 25 minutes. And finally, uh, David, when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you? Uh, three places. I live on LinkedIn. So just David Allison on LinkedIn, or I think yeah. value graphics will get you to my company site. Yeah. Uh, and two, two web addresses, one for my work as a speaker, which mm -hmm. is very important to me. Uh, and that's David Allison Inc.com. Uh, and then uh, the company site, the research company is valuegraphics.com. Yeah. Oh, splendid. Well, it's great to catch up with you finally and have you on the show. So thanks very much for your time. I know you, we're both pressed for time this afternoon, so I'll get us going. Thank you very much, mate. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you, David. I'm fascinated by his work, and 20 minutes was not enough to cover it. So I hope to have him back, and I'll include all of his links in the show notes. Right, it's time to wind down in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar and join my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose, chief troublemaker at the Content Advisory, for a cocktail and a marketing thought. Good evening, Robert. What are you drinking? Ah, hello, my friend. Welcome. What? what wait a minute. <laughs> what? What is going... What? Okay, so I knew you would change the place over to have live music, but... I this is a this is a genre of music that I thought you, I didn't even know you knew about. I've heard a little bit about this, but I can't believe you, you found this this cute heavy metal. How did you find out about cute heavy metal? I mean, it's such a Japanese thing. It's like this wonderful um, baby heavy metal. Sometimes mm -hmm. they call it, I guess. But um, yeah. yeah, here you go, cute oh, heavy metal. It's uh, great stuff. Well, all the, all the cool kids are into the, into this now. I mean, the Folktronica that came and went a couple of weeks ago. I mean, who's talking about that now? Nobody, right? So that's right. Move on to something else. And um, yeah, the Folktronica moved into sort of this cute baby heavy cute metal. It's baby like, uh, heavy metal. Yeah. So um, yeah. yeah. So you're enjoying this then? I, I, I'm totally <laughs> enjoying this. I'm mostly enjoying the fact that you're going to spend your Saturday. <laughs> researching baby heavy metal to try and find a something to play in the background here yes. but yes that is i am totally enjoying this music yes. let's let the baby heavy metal die down a little and um and, and find out what we're drinking this week yeah <laughs> right before we run afoul of the copyright gods yes uh, probably should do that <clears throat> um Yes, uh, what we are drinking is we're we're going to keep it really simple this week and and return to some uh uh, nice. uh, some tequila roots here. Um, nice. There is a new, wonderful—I don't know if it's new or not—but it's it's relatively new. Um, which uh, uh, one of my favorite new añejos um, that we will be drinking, just straight, right? No, you know, no oh. lime in it. Just may maybe a rock if you're if you're so inclined. But basically, uh -huh. just a sipping, a wonderful sipping añejo, uh, and it's called Olmeca Altos. Uh, Olmeca, O L M E C A, and then Altos. Uh, it is not expensive. It, it is not an expensive anejo, but it is a unique tasting, lovely sipping uh, anejo, and we're just going to have a nice, 
really just nice, smooth uh, set of drinks here and just, you know, just have, have a nice sip of these things. It's just a lovely way to end an evening. That sounds lovely. Well, I am going to attempt to make that extremely complicated drink using yeah. only the ingredients on my desktop bar. Oh, uh, fantastic. So yeah. I'm going to, I know you said, uh, you know, I know you said that I was allowed to put a rock in there, so I'm going to drop some ice in. And then I'm going to use what I think we've already agreed, and it's probably not um, such a nice sipping um, anejo, but it is the most English of tequilas. It is, of course, Hendrix Gin. Ah, yes. So I shall let, hang on a minute. Yes. A little bit of that. Neither neither tequila nor an anejo, but um, but mm. yes. No, that's true. But um, it's what I've got on my desk. Yeah. And then well. um, and then I, to replace the the fact that you put nothing else in it, <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm I'm not going to sip this gin because um, I, I'm in more of a session with you, my friend, and I'm mm. gonna have to put a mixer in this. And the mixer I'm choosing is gonna be some nice. Uh, cucumber tonic water from the lovely people ah, of Fever Tree yeah, who don't go. sponsor this show. There you go. Um, so, and uh, let me give that a try. Mm. An excellent choice as usual, Robert. I could drink one of these every week. I um, suspect you might. And yes. where are you whisking this away to with this very classy beverage? I think, well, there, is, there was a couple of choices that I had. And, of mm. course, the most obvious is Mexico, of course. But yes. I think we're actually going to head out to the desert Ooh. for this. Um, I, you know, this, there is a very rare window here uh, in uh, Southern California in the west of the U.S. where the desert is actually pleasurable. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, and this is it. We're in it, um, <laughs> where the nights are, or in the evenings are quite cool and quite pleasant, uh, not too cold, but not too warm either. So sort of, you know, again, forgive the Fahrenheit here, but you know, in the mid seventies to low seventies, nice. you know, in the evening. And then of course, dipping down into the low sixties in the, in the night. And then of course it gets hot in the, during the day, but that's lovely and hot and dry. So we're going to head out to Joshua Tree. Uh, and Joshua Tree is just, it's here in California. And of course, it's a, it's a, it's out in the desert. Mm -hmm. And there are some really wonderful sort of just out in the middle of nowhere types of places to sit and have uh, drinks and or food. Um, some great Mexican food places, but of course, it doesn't really matter. Um, and the point being, um, it is just going to be where we sit, watch the sunset over the desert mountains and Joshua Tree and the beautiful Joshua Trees that are out there and just watch the sunset as we sip this wonderful tequila. Wow, that sounds beautiful. And that's quite close to you. Is it just out into the desert near you? It is close, relatively speaking, but not close so that you can just make it a day trip or something. It's, right. you know, it's because of traffic and the way that the freeways run and all of that. It's probably a two hour drive from right. from from where I am right now. Nice. Very nice. All right. So um, I don't think that that particular vision and these lovely drinks need spoiling with conversation about marketing, but inevitably... That's where the conversation Inevi will go. Inevi He said with a sigh, inevitably. 
inevitably, I have to fill the show's 20 minutes here. So how, what the hell are we going to talk about? Well, we could just describe the sky and the Joshua tree, and I could ask you all sorts of questions about yeah, it. Yeah, but, but... You'd, you'd lose all kinds of subscribers over that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe. Uh, but then, no, no the, because the nice thing about this, this is your marketing thought, not mine. So I think that's why people stay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, your marketing thought for this week? <laughs> well... I'm thinking about change that sticks. Uh-huh. Um, you know, this is something that is always top of mind to me as a consultant yeah. um, in the space that I'm in where content strategy, content marketing is usually some kind of disruptive change that really affects the way a lot of people do their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and especially now in modern marketing, when marketing teams are so siloed off from each other, the question always becomes, well, how, you know, thinking about how do you make this disruptive change management stick? There's a old joke uh, that I recently <laughs> thought about, and so the joke is not that funny, but it's but the joke nonetheless. Um, there's so there's two hikers out in the woods, and out they round this bend in the trail, and they come face to face with a big, huge, angry bear, and so. One of the hikers drops to his knee, fetches his running shoes out of his backpack and starts lacing him up. And the other hiker simply stares at him and says, well, there's no way you're going to outrun that bear. And the kneeling hiker stands up, shoes laced up, says, you know, I don't have to be faster than the bear. I only have to be faster than you uh, and, <laughs> and runs off. Now, joke's not that funny, of course, but, but um, it, the, the point of it is, is interesting because it's, it's how I often see siloed marketing teams. Um, which is an interesting. So just to put it into context, we were working with a client last month, um, marketing director at a large Fortune 500 financial services uh, company. And we're talking about, um, you know, the fact that they might want to do some projects with us, right? So, um, and we eventually did win the project. But, but basically it was interesting because five years ago, we had also worked with this same company. Oh, wow. And so I was relaying the work. I was like, oh, that's so great that you're calling. Five years ago, we worked with you and, and we talked about the team and this same kind of project we were going to be talking about here. And then we, on our first call, the, the marketing director, you know, she said, well, I'm confused. Um, who, who were the people that you had worked on on that project? Because, yeah. you know, I had never heard of it. <laughs> So I told her the name of the team members and she laughed and she's like, oh, I remember them. They were a very fast moving, disruptive team. Most of them are gone now. <laughs> so so this is the first time I'm ever hearing details of that project. Right. And that's a fascinating thing to me because this is a common thing that we hear in marketing these days where these there's this, you know, innovation, let's call it an innovation gap, right? Because we have sort of our sort of perceptions, right? You know, you go to a conference, you read a magazine article, you read a case study about some cool, new, innovative thing that a company is doing. And we all assume, you know, you make the assumption that when you hear that case study or that thing at the conference, or you read about it or whatever, you sort of, you sort of picture everybody in the company, you know, including, by the way, the CMO sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, kicking up her heels going, yes, I approved that wonderful strategy. Thank (laughs) you very much. It's awesome. And yes, I take great pride in the fact that the teams are all working together in this cool, innovative, disruptive way. And it's almost never the case, right? Not only has the other teams not done the innovative, cool project, but 
they maybe never even heard of it, right? Mm-hmm. So the bear of evolving strategies, they're chasing the business and one marketing team may be outrunning its friends. <laughs> and there's certainly uh, interesting challenges with that. But the biggest one, and the one that we can certainly chat about, is that this isn't all, it's not always a good thing to outrun your friends in the business, right? So where in the woods, it's a nice thing because yeah, your friend gets mauled by a bear and you don't. But <laughs> the in the real world, we see this actually really coming back to harm or hurt the team that's outrunning the others. Mm-hmm. Because what ends up happening is, you know, and so many times we work with a team and they'll go, yeah, 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 we're going to communicate to the others this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't want to talk to them now because they'll just slow us down, right? They'll just, yeah, yeah. they'll slow us down or they'll want to do stuff that we don't want to do. And let's just do us now and then we'll figure out how to communicate it later. And again, while we find that, yes, you can get some short-term agility, you get some, get some short-term speed, it can also leave you out there alone. Mm-hmm. And one client in particular, we watched as they, their team, did this cool, awesome, new customer facing. They did this awesome digital publication. It was beautiful. They launched it. It was disruptive. And they put their heads down and worked on it. And then they were way out ahead of their colleagues. And what they failed to notice was the entire rest of the organization had pivoted away from that kind of thing and moved into like account-based marketing. Right. And so when they realized how far the gap had become between them, mm-hmm. well, then they spent months trying to, oh, no, 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 no. We, you know, <laughs> getting this retroactive buy-in, like, no, 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 we didn't mean that. You know, oh, wait God. a minute. And ultimately, the rest of the organization went, yeah, it's useless to us. And they turned the whole thing off. They turned the whole digital publication off. Wow. And so... The answer, what is the answer? Well, the answer is, is that, and I've said this before, I've said it on this show, I've said it on other shows, you know, 90% of a modern content strategy has nothing to do with the content. It is all about communication. So fast change executed in a silo rarely sticks, even in the silo it was made. And so you've got to create an active communication effort from the beginning of the change and not just at the end of the change, but after the change has already happened. And, you know, it's an enduring thing Mm -hmm. to make sure that the change sticks. You know, it's not no news is good news. You've got to keep that enduring communication with your team, building an internal comms plan, executing that internal comms plan and maintaining that external comms plan or internal comms plan over years. And so I've just realized after doing this for 20 years, de-siloing marketing teams, not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's just, you're just not going to do it. But bridging the silos with an effective communications and collaboration plan is possible. And that's at least what we can do to make sure that the change that we create, the disruptive innovation sticks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, and, um, you know, I've witnessed sometimes that that happening. And, And also that I think that's interesting about that corporate memory that you referred to. Like you, you were talking to the same client five years later and everybody had moved on. And like you say, because the strategy hadn't stuck, the corporate memory was lost of these things that they presumably. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a great point because after hearing all of that, you know, five years ago, you, the, the question may be, well, Robert, you know, you, you, you believe in all of this. Well, what happened with them? Right? Yeah, why yeah. didn't they, you know, why, you know, why didn't they do things? And, it, and the reason is, is because there's an ironic thing that happens, right? There's this I- ironic thing that happens when you end a project 
and it goes really, really well. Like, so if you, you, you finish this disruptive change, like a content marketing strategy or a content strategy that changes the way that people do things and it starts to go really well. So what you start to assume as your team is that, you know, I mean, if we're completely honest with ourselves, the only time we go out and get ex, you know, internal buy-in from other teams is usually when we've got something pretty shitty to announce, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> this is, this is going to require you to buy into something you probably don't want to do, or this is going to require buy-in from something you probably don't agree with. So what you're trying to do is get at least alignment, right? So you're trying, so, but the opposite happens when we do something so awesome that works really well, we, we go, we just kind of assume, oh, the rest of the company must know because it's going so well for us. It must be going well for them. (laughs) And so we, and that's what happened here was it went really well. And they just sort of assumed that their internal comms plan went great and everything was hunky dory and things were going well for them. The people that they'd rolled it out to were in acceptance of it. Things were great. And they stopped. They, They didn't do the enduring part of that internal comms plan. And thus, as you say, the corporate memory got really forgetful fast. Well, I also think that sometimes you get enough permission to get rolling and everybody gets really excited about the, that part of it. And you avoid the difficult conversations or getting other people involved because you're just having, it's, it's, you know, it's great fun what we're getting done and moving forward. But the next gateway is in, is coming and you don't know. And unless, if you haven't got the company, and other stakeholders on board, you're going to fall at that gateway. Whereas right now, it's it's you know as a as a Skunk Works project or a POC, or you're just getting up and running, or we can do this without everybody. This is great. At some point, you are going to need to engage with other people and have those difficult conversations earlier, aren't you? Yeah, and the time yeah. to have them is from the very beginning, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know what I mean. It's like yeah. you can start to get your you know, you can start to have the harder conversations, the places where you're going to need help. You're going to have to have people do things that yeah. they haven't done before. You're going to have to have things that they people may not want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can start to identify those things and figure out how you can make, you know, it's, it's always the what's in it for me kind of conversation, yes. right? What, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. how yeah. is changing the way I do my job going to, you know, benefit yeah. you, but more importantly, how is it going to benefit me? Yeah. Um, and so you have those conversations yeah. earlier a to identify where they're going to need you're going to need more of the enduring thing but mm-hmm. more importantly where you need to make it successful and but then don't forget after you've done that to reiterate it and reiterate it and mm-hmm. and create it and and go after the people who need to know but may not be you know uh, ultimately affected right one there, uh, one of our clients did this such an amazing job of this once the thing was up and running and the sort of people that were doing the new workflow and were part of the new asset management system and the content strategy and all that were all in their process, she then put together a roadshow for all the other people who weren't involved right? to basically say, hey, we did this cool new thing and I know this doesn't affect you, but look, it's this really awesome new thing. If you want to do it in your division or if you're doing it in your region or if you're going to do it, this is, a, this is something you can learn from. Yeah. Right. So it becomes a business oriented change that actually worked, even for those places that weren't ultimately affected in the in the first go round. Yeah. It's marketing the marketing, isn't it? To Mar- yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I think it's great. And I, I think that um, the other thing is, is those questions that you were just talking about at the beginning. Don't think that 
just because you can move forward without answering those questions today, that those questions aren't going to come circling right back tomorrow. And they may be harder and may cripple your project. You know, get that stuff out of the way early for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, or acknowledge that you're not going to do that and, 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 you know, and, and, and understand the risks, right? Yeah. I just think, in other words, you, you, you know, the, the, the real shame of it is that what they, you know, what this, for for example, this particular client ultimately probably, and you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to say this out loud because I don't want to talk myself out of business here, but (laughs) they, if they had done this the right way, they could have literally gone back to what the project we had done before and gone, ah, we can, we can learn the same lessons, right? You know, things probably haven't changed that much. So we can, you know, we can, but now they're going to do it again. And yeah. you know, that now that may be fine, right? The, there, there may be, mm. you know, in the moment that you're in that moment, you may go, you know what? That's fine. That's, mm. that's fine. I don't care that much. I need to get my stuff done mm. right now and making this a corporate wide learning experience. <laughs> isn't my priority <laughs> fine, yeah. but acknowledge that, you know, and then, you know, don't be, don't be, you know, don't be surprised. Then you might have to do the work again. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's so right what you were saying earlier about answering the question of what it's, what's in it for me. If you're doing something like this and you've got external stakeholders, that is, you know, get that answer right. And, uh, and it's going to be much easier. Indeed. I love it. I love it. Okay, so um, where would people find an article written about this very topic? Well, they'll find it at our lovely website called contentadvisory.net where we, where we sell all of our wares. It's, it's, it's all the, the hashtag all the things that we do. That's splendid. I, and I forgot to make a segue joke about it. That was, that was awful. And uh, when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you, mate? You know, the, I guess this week what I would point people to is the lovely podcast that I do with my friend Joe Polizzi. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I would also, uh, that you, so you can spin the dials there and find, uh-huh. find us there. You can find yeah. me on LinkedIn, of course. And then I would also invite people to join up with us and our merry band of misfits at our lovely uh, experienceadvisors.io community where we are talking about these kinds of things. Yes. all the time yes and i will include links to all those things in the show notes and uh, and your show with joe you didn't mention the title is this old marketing which i'm sure people can find that's splendid thanks mate but most important for me will you be in the bar next week i'm wa- i cannot wait for the next genre of music here yes it, <laughs> baby heavy metal here we go i love it yeah do you know that's what i look forward to too <laughs> yeah yep. thank you mate i'll see you then thank you Robert and for surprising me with a bit of baby metal there and that was their track Road of Resistance recorded at Clastonbury so that's a wrap on episode 164 of the Rockstar CMO effing marketing podcast thanks to Jeff, David and Robert for sharing their insight and to you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox selecting our track and jiving along with us Please let us know what you think. You can contact us through our website, rockstarcmo.com. Catch us on the socials. We are Rockstar CMO just about everywhere. Or leave a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Or (laughs) just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, Jeff will be back in the studio. SiteLogic's Matt Bailey is back to chat about hiring talent. And Robert will be back in the bar. Until then, have a great week. And I hope you again join us here next week on Rockstar CMO. 
FM。This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.